Um, thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, you, uh, you may have noticed coming in that there are some people in this room who are possessed of a kind of calm wisdom and, and piercing intelligence that can only happen when you are in the inner circle of the most groundbreaking ideas in the world. Those people are all members of the Next Big Idea Club. Uh, and there's a, <coughs> and, and if you'd like to radiate that glow, we have a 10% off uh, thing for you. And it, it, it's uh, Malcolm Gladwell and friends curating the greatest ideas of the year. <coughs> we are thrilled to be um, co-hosting the event tonight with uh, Wired and Betaworks Studios. Uh, this is, for me, one of the most exciting evenings I can imagine, because not only is this one of my very favorite books, but this is, as has been revealed, it's written by my sister. Writing books, as we know, is hard. Um, that's why only a small subset of us actually write books. I'm very good at not writing books. The, um, uh, if you write books the easy way, it's still really, really hard. Amanda wrote this book the hard way, and I know she wrote this the hard way because of the phone calls. Uh, phone calls like, um, hey, Rufus, I'm, I'm in the outskirts of Mumbai, and I'm getting on an airplane that's like an old jalopy single-engine plane, and we're going to fly into a monsoon cloud to try to seed that cloud to produce rainfall. But I'm kind of nervous because the plane doesn't look very, there's like big storms above me. And I was like, Amanda, that's insane. That, you know, when, you, when you write books, you can call people on the phone. You don't have to be, you can talk to the pilot. You don't have to be on the airplane. Of course, she ends up like vomiting all over the inside of this plane. Uh, and then it was like, oh, Rufus, I'm, uh, hey, I, I'm in Ethiopia. I'm reporting on the famine here. And uh, unfortunately, I'm, uh, I've gotten deathly ill. I haven't eaten in a week. Uh, there are no hospitals. I'm in a very remote location. I'm sitting uh, at a gate, and I just shat my pants. <laughs> Um, and I'm like, again, like, is this entirely necessary? We really, you know, uh, and yeah, but this is, I'm, I'm her older brother. I mean, come on, this is part of the fun of, you gotta give yourself a, you know, and then, and then, and then there was like, hey, I'm signing my life away because I'm eating a piece of meat that was grown in a, in a laboratory that, that, that might not be fatal, uh, but, you know, should I sign this? And, um, at any rate, so this, you know. I said, sis, you don't have to write this book the hard way. There are easier ways to write books. Uh, and, uh, but of course, this is a young woman whose favorite quote is uh, something along the lines of, um, uh, that which gives light must endure the burning. Um, so suffice to say, she does things the hard way. And we are the beneficiaries of uh, the very, very hard way that she's written this book over the past five years, traveling to 12 countries and as many states uh, and it's, it's really an extraordinary book that is a trifecta of being both important, timely, really of this moment, and, and also just kind of a riveting page turner of an entertaining read. So there's, there's, the, there's the brotherly endorsement. Now, I can't leave Nick Thompson without an introduction after, after giving that up for my sister. Uh, uh, Amanda has her, uh, uh, met an equal in Nick who has been a mentor over the years. He's the editor-in-chief of Wired magazine. Um, he, um, I think, is qualified to have this conversation. He double majored in earth science and political science at Stanford and used that great education to then uh, play um, music in uh, subway platforms for a period of time. He then went on to um, write his first reported piece uh, about his experience being kidnapped uh, by drug lords in Morocco. Um, or, or perhaps you were reporting your first piece and were kidnapped by drug lords, something, something along these lines. Uh, and uh, so, so I, I'm a little concerned the mentorship may have this, all this daring do, this international daring do might have rubbed off. At any rate, um, wonderful to have you guys here tonight. Thank you so much, Nick and Amanda.
Thank you very much, and thank you, uh, Betaworks, for hosting. It's an honor to get to talk about this book. The funny thing about that introduction is that um, the way I met Amanda, or the way we started working, is that I tried to kill her. Um, <laughs> and I assigned her a story that required her to fly 200 miles in a helicopter to an oil rig. Yeah. Was there a storm? I can't Off the quite coast remember. Of this is 2007. Louisiana. Yeah. I had discovered Xanax. It was really a good, 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 good timing for me because I was in a very small helicopter for a very long time to get to an ultra deep sea oil rig. And uh, yes, that was thanks. Right. To so the brotherly reaction is don't go. <laughs> the editor's reaction is when do you leave? <laughs> um, anyway, so let's let's start this conversation. We're going to talk about her book for a while, and then we're going to do Q and A. So let's start there. Uh, that was her project on reporting on oil. You spent several years working on uh, working on that topic, and then you switched to food. Tell me why. Uh, well, okay, I I really was following the sort of interests of my readers. Really, I mean, I I tried to get at the story of climate change through energy because. Um, you know, there's some pretty obvious ties between our fossil fuel usage and and climate change. And I did this first book called Power Trip, the story of America's love affair with energy in 2000, I think, eight it was. And uh, everywhere I went on book tour, everybody wanted to talk about food because I had a chapter on agriculture. And um, it just suddenly occurred to me that, uh, you know, what what was it George Bernard Shaw said, there's no simpler love than the love of food, um, that this was actually a topic that uh, is, you know, really unifying people are do it every day, uh, three times a day. And, um, and it just so happens my amazing agent, Kim Witherspoon, is in the room. And, uh, and she happens, she, I sort of fell into her lap um, right when my first book was publishing. And she represents a lot of great food-related uh, people, writers, personalities, and so on. And, um, and we talked and got sort of me on the track of thinking about not really like Food as a foodie story, and I'm a terrible cook, as you probably got in there. I mean, it was very I clear try early I in try. the book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. I follow recipes. I love to eat, but I'm not very good at the at the making of food. But um, but I really, it was actually very liberating to come at this from the outside, not as a food person or as a foodie or someone who's an insider in the world. Um, it gave me a lot of freedom to kind of look at the way that this issue is, why it's so emotional for people, why it's such a polarized discussion around what's the future of sustainable food, um, how we can all sort of go about participating in this. There's, it's, it's a topic that really excites people. And so I came at it because I liked the story and I liked the tension in the story um, and because I had that freedom of, you know, an outsider. But was the hypothesis climate change is the struggle of our time, the most important issue we have to deal with, the single most important thing we can deal with is food, or is it more climate change is caused by this constellation of issues, there's this really interesting one of food, I'm going to go into that. Well, this was probably the most surprising thing about you know, telling this story and reporting this story, it was that you know, the, the, the main way that most people on planet Earth are going to experience climate change is through its impact on food. And I really found that surprising because, you know, I kind of thought about displaced populations and flooding and, you know, all the, you know, diplomatic crises that will surround climate refugees. Um, and we've heard so much about forest fires and certainly mega droughts and 
all the problems that come with um, you know, so many aspects of climate change. It's kind of hard to say, like, this is the big one, because the, the whole thing is so big and massive and complex. Um, but it was Jerry Hatfield, who's a USDA scientist, and he said to me, um, the biggest disruption, the broadest disruption of climate change will be in food systems because there will be very region-specific impacts, um, you know, again, related to drought, flooding, um, and, you know, in, intolerable heat and so forth. There will be uninhabitable regions of the earth. But the global food system is so integrated, and, you know, we, for example, in the U.S., import more than half of our fruits, uh, it is, we are so heavily reliant on other regions of the world to produce the food we love, to say nothing of, for example, coffee and, you know, chocolate and these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, what happens in, you know, southern France or what happens in, um, you know, uh, regions of India and, you know, all these places that I've visited were, 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 were disturbances in food systems that were, you know, very far away, but gonna, we're going to have pretty intimate impacts on my own, you know, life. Um, and that was really interesting to me and much harder to, a, a much harder story to tell than, you know, the energy story I reported, which was really a you you know a story of energy in the US. So that's an interesting book where it's it starts what what seems like a surprising realization, right? Yeah. You didn't start with a hypothesis and then dig deeper. You actually were struck that climate change is coming and it will most impact our food or one of the most important ways it will impact us is food. We think yeah. about water coming in off the West Side Highway, but actually it's right. the food we have like the comprehensiveness of the impacts was so interesting to me. Like I just didn't I, 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 it hadn't occurred to me that there was this relationship between climate and food, and I will say that as I was reporting this, and it was in all these different locations, you know, in, you know, apple farms and in, um, you know, corn farms and in aquaculture, you know, um, facilities and so on, but it kept occurring to me, climate change is something you can taste. Climate change is something you can taste. And that is just so wild to me because we're in this moment where, you know, we're witnessing an assault on climate science from the White House. And it is so intimate. It is so intimate. It's not just, you know, the corn and soy farmers currently in the Midwest who are dealing with flooding in their fields. They're not even, you know, near major water bodies and they're dealing with flooding in their fields. They can't plant their soy and corn. It's a huge impact on grain production in the U.S. Literally, like right now, this can't, this is a problem. Um, and yet it's also impacting these luxury goods. Like, you know, olive oil was going to, was we, Italy was running out of olive oil two, a few months ago. It was like in the headlines. Italy's running out of olive oil because of extreme weather? What? Um, same thing with, you know, coffee. I mean, I've been doing a story on the future of the coffee industry, and it's amazing the pressures on the 20 million small coffee farmers, small holder coffee farmers around the world. They're dealing with amazing pressures, not only of heat, um, but the coffee plant is very fickle. They, there's um, coffee rust fungus that's exacerbated by heat and moisture. So there's so many ways in which this story is playing out, and it's, you know, it's staple grains, and it's luxury products, and somehow, you know, people are tuning in because, in part, we realize we have, like, strawberries and Chardonnay are on the line, you know? Like, this is, like, the things we love are on the line, you know? And uh, it's a little easier to think, like, yeah, I can do without soybeans, but, um, but yeah, the stuff we love is really pretty significantly threatened. And for me, you know, 
Like, I don't know what would happen to the GDP in the United States if, if we couldn't get, you know, a steady supply of dark roast. But in our household, like, it would be catastrophic. I don't know what we would do. I, I feel like it might go up, actually. I feel like there's so much time spent in coffee lines at this point in America. <laughs> but there's a period where there would be less coffee and the lines would get longer and productivity would go down. In any case, help me understand a framework for the crops that are most at risk and why? Because surely there's some that are more durable, that can survive through extreme cold, extreme heat, can move as agricultural zones move. What are the crops that are most at risk and why? That's a really good question. The, the, the high nutrient, high flavor crops are um, incredibly fickle, you know? So um, coffee's a great example of a crop that needs very specific, um, uh, conditions to, to succeed. Um, and that's why they, you know, they're, I don't know, nine major coffee producing countries in the world. And there are countries like Vietnam where there's now huge, like large scale coffee production, but for the sort of, uh, and, and which is fairly new, but the, the sort of, um, you know, single origin, you know, artisanal coffee, that is, I hope that's not my phone. But if it is, just throw it out the window or something. Um, uh, but anyway, the the single use artisanal coffees are very threatened, and and it's a that's an interesting story. Um, uh, I I think basically everything is 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 under siege or or under threat, I should say. But um, I mean, in, given that like who would have predicted that you couldn't plant soy and corn, uh, you know, in May and June in the Midwest of the United States? I mean, that was very hard to imagine that these storms would be so um, have such an impact. Um, but you know, stone fruits, for example, and um, vineyards, and you know, where you can't crop, you can't recrop every year or every season, are really difficult because when there's damage to um, you know an olive farm. Um, that's been around for, you know, decades. Um, it's, you know, going to take another six years to plant a new olive tree and get it back online, um, I mean, producing. Um, so, you know, the impacts on um, fruits, particularly stone fruits and tree fruits, were really um, alarming to me. And it wasn't just, here comes a storm and wipes out all the blossoms and, you know, and, and devastates the, um, the, the harvest, which can happen. It was actually subtle changes in, in seasons because this tree gets confused and thinks it's spring and summer in February or January, and so it blooms, and then it's also all this disturbance in the chilling units it's getting because of a warmer winters. I mean, so many subtleties in how this tree functions and how this tree performs. Um, and just a few nights of, you know, um, warmer temperatures can confuse a tree or um, an early, he you know, heat wave in um, January, February can c confuse a tree. It produces the blooms and then a normal freeze comes and wipes everything out. Um, so it's very hard for those trees to adapt and for the farmers to adapt because you can't throw another, you know, um, you know, corn crop down in four months and with, you know, um, some sort of climate resilient properties in it. Part of what I looked at was how are, for example, um, you know, corn farmers in um, Western Kenya dealing with and trying to think about um, adapting crops to new pressures. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation. But there are, there's so much research going on right now about how can we adapt, um, you know, even citrus trees to the, you know, new pressures, insect pressures, heat pressures, and so on in Florida. Um, 
it's a lot harder to replant an entire orange grove than it is to replant a, a cornfield. But um, I mean, that just gives you a sense of sort of the range of, of, of things that are going on. It's harder in terms of the crops that are most at risk, I would say it's harder for crops that just have longer life cycles because um, it's, it's gonna, the, the adaptation is more difficult. So everything is at risk, but most at risk is the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, the high nutrient, delicious stuff is, right. you know, Grown in like specific areas by people who've cared for it for generations. That's the that's stuff that's the really stuff. toast. Yeah. I did, I mean, I awesome. just was on the, uh, uh, I was actually doing, Rufus, you would be happy to know that I was doing research on this Guatemalan coffee farm by, um, you know, FaceTime or whatever. Like this guy was taking me into his coffee farm that was 500 acres um, and he had, it had been in his family for five generations. And it was, it had been a thousand, acres and sort of winnowed down to 500 and he was producing half the crop. It was the lowest production ever because it had been wiped out by coffee rust fungus. And he was showing me with his phone these, you know, what it looks like for these crops to go through, you know, these, um, you know, you know, this damage. And, uh, and it was really quite astounding. I mean, he was really innovative and in trying to think about how do I save these, how do I you know, treat the plants differently, and how do we insulate them from these problems? But, you know, he was a 38-year-old coffee farmer um, whose, you know, in, you know, the entire legacy of his coffee farm had never seen this kind of pressure, and that was surprising to me because you'd think that, you know, the farm would become more and more productive over time, and that was not the case. All right, I'm getting depressed. Let's talk about um, <laughs> this book. Actually, has lots of optimism. Actually. Would you call this an optimistic book? Well, um, it was really like exciting to me when Julia Louis-Dreyfus decided to blurb the book, and then she said, man, a little is hell-bent on hope, which I <laughs> was uh, very happy to hear that that's how she saw the thing. Whether she read it or not is another question I don't know. But um, um, I mean, a lot of the feedback has been, this is so optimistic. This is so optimistic. And I mean, I'm personally very optimistic. I think, you know, this narrative of we're running out of food is as old as civilization, right? Like we've been coming up against challenges in food production and feeding humanity um, since the first, you know, fields of einkorn wheat were planted in, you know, 10,000 BC or something. Um, and, you know, it's the, the stakes are much higher. We have many more mouths to feed. It's a much different thing. But, you know, we have been sort of anticipating that this that we're you know facing apocalypse of some kind of food apocalypse for for many 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 generations. Um, so I think that that instinct for survival that kicked in historically is kicking in, and that's what interested me. I mean, those were the people that I went to meet, the scientists and engineers and farmers and so on, who were who were, you know, adapting and thinking about how to adapt. Right, and so that's. A, a lot of the core of the book is the stories of people coming up and using science and technology to solve these problems. Let's start with um, let's start with an interesting one, which is what is your position on GMOs and tell me how it evolved because that's a, a big part of the story. Yeah, I kind of went into this with the same sort of assumptions that a lot of us have about GMOs, and um, I didn't want to you know report the GMO story in the U.S. Um, because the debate around GMOs is so much about, you know, labeling corn chips and, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow really doesn't like GMOs and, um, and I really didn't want to, like, 
write a story that's pro-GMOs and have you know all the sustainable food people um, yell at me. Um, but I, so I wanted to get out of the context of you know the U.S. and so I reported that story in. Um, in Kenya and went to some labs and where they were working on um, GMOs with sort of a different <laughs> uh, purpose, right? The problem with GMOs right now is that those that the application of the technology has been, you know, really questionable, right? We're designing plants. The big GMO crop out there is called Roundup Ready. It's Roundup Ready corn. It's, these, you know, planted on millions of acres. And essentially, Monsanto designed crops that can tolerate chemicals. So you can apply tons and tons of chemicals to these plants and they won't die, but the weeds will die, right? So it's basically herbicide tolerant crops. Um, and we're hearing a lot actually in recent weeks about glyphosate and the problems with, which is what Roundup, Ready, Roundup is, um, that you, we've so inundated our crops with glyphosate um, and we've designed them to be tolerant of this chemical and then we eat them. Um, and, uh, you know, this is GMO, right? Well, no, GMO is a method through which the crops were designed to be tolerant of a chemical. But you could also use, you know, genetic editing and modification to help plants adapt to more realistic or more necessary and urgent pressures like, for example, drought. So the scientists that I interviewed in, um, in Kenya were working on um, drought tolerance, they're working on insect resistance, um, and that's really valuable for farmers who can't afford uh, pesticides uh, and are dealing with a lot of invasive insects that are devastating their crops. Um, and they basically said, look, you can come at this with this sort of GMOs are terrible and we need to you know, um, label corn chips, but for us, this is a question of survival. And you know, when you talk, we have been genetically manipulating plant genomes since the beginning of farming for, again, 10,000 years. Um, and so the notion that you're sort of tinkering with, with the essence of life um, is, you know, somehow GMOs give us this ability to tinker with the essence of life that's more sort of dramatic or invasive than, um, you know, another kind of conventional breeding is bullshit because that's what breeding has been since the beginning of time. We've been selecting for sweeter, bigger, juicier fruits and vegetables for you know thousands of years, and this is why we've ended up with our food system today. Right, so you're walking by two bins of chips. One says GMO-free, one has GMOs. You reach for the GMO one, like on principle. Well, I will tell you that I don't want a corn chip that's grown with a ton of glyphosate. My problem with the GMO corn chip is not that it was GMO. And by the way, I've eaten many, many, many GMOs. I have 20 years of GMOs in my system, and so do you. Um, so we've all been eating GMOs for the better part of three decades, actually two and a half decades. I had decades. some just a minute ago. Yeah. Delicious. <laughs> right over there, there's a buffet of GMOs. It's, they're <laughs> everywhere. But I mean, you know, I don't want corn that has a ton of glyphosate in my food. I don't want corn that has a lot of agrochemicals in my food. So that was why the chapter that I loved most in this book was really about um, removing chemicals from our food system. But the problem for me is not changing genomes in plants, because that is as old as time, really. Um, or, you know, civil, well, civilized wait, let's, let's pause there for a second. Okay, totally agree. We have been manipulating genomes since the beginning of time. That's how we breed plants. Obviously, it's a, we're going to have to do something like that. 
But is there a line we shouldn't cross? Is there anything we shouldn't do in manipulating plant genomes? Besides, like, manipulating them to be worse. Yes, absolutely. But like, is there, but like, like, what is the moral line? Like, you should not modify these particular well, plants. Well, Dole, or for example, just came out with the pink pineapple, where they have, in, it, you know, slid a gene for pinkness. I don't know what the gene is. Maybe it's like crustacean gene or something. So and genes it's that in the pineapple so that it expresses the pink color, and you slice it open, and it's it's now been actually... So you're against genetic modification for aesthetic reasons? No, there I'm not. I mean, I'm really not. I don't think that Or you poses, just hate pink pineapple. I don't think it poses a human health problem. I just think it's a frivolous use of a very important technology. This is, this is the analogy, right? The analogy is when someone says, don't ever sh give your kid an iPad, you know? I mean, there are people who are absolutists, and your kid can never see a screen. You should, ne should never see television or an iPad. And across the board, movies, TV, and iPads or you know apps are bad for 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 the brain. I, my feeling is there are great applications of you know iPads and you know screen technologies, and there are terrible applications of it. Um, it's the same thing. This is a technology platform, so you can apply it in ways that are very harmful, and you can apply it in ways that are beneficial. Um, and so the notion that GMOs as a rule are bad is as flawed as the notion that iPads are bad, you know, for kids. I mean, and maybe everybody thinks that iPads are bad for kids, um, but, or, but, or, or TV or whatever. I mean, TV's a great, you know, if you just say like TV's wrong and bad, then you may have the, an attitude that would be, you know, um, pretty consistent with GMOs are wrong and bad. I did not know this going into my reporting. I really thought, like, you can't do anything good with a platform, you know, that manipulates genomes, the new genomes of plants. And now I've realized, okay, it's a much more nuanced dis discussion. So let's talk about some of the other technologies that you write about. You write about, we've got vertical farming, 3D food printing, lab-grown, let's talk about lab-grown meat, because you ate some. How did it taste? Meaty. <laughs> it was explain what it was, explain how it tasted, and explain what the future is. Well, let me just get back to like the beginning of that story, because I, I actually started that story reporting on, on Tyson Foods, um, which had begun investing in Memphis Meats, which is the, the company that I ultimately focused on in, in that chapter. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I was amazed that actually Cargill Meats first invested in this, what's called cultured meats or cell-based meats, or Terry Gross liked to call it cloned meats, which is um, some the way that some people have described it, but it's in fact um, not cloned. We can get into that. Um, so it's, it's, it's basically cell-based meats is the way that the, these people like to call it themselves. And you know, that sounded weird, like frankenmeats, this is so bizarre, you grow cells in a bioreactor and you eat them and that's totally freaky, but a great story and I better go try it. Um, but, um, but what really made it interesting to me was that Cargill Meats was investing in this thing and, t and Tyson Foods was investing in this thing. And why are these people investing in this disruptive technology and essentially, Tom Hayes, who was then the CEO of Tyson, and this was only half a year ago or a year ago or something, when the, maybe it was, I don't know, a year, let's say, um, said, we don't want to be Kodak. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be the tobacco industry. We see that, like, our, you know, archaic animal-based meats are 
becoming archaic. And, you know, we see what's happening with Impossible Foods, we see what's happening with Beyond Meats, which had some, like, major bump in their valuation today or something. Um, I should have read that, that you passed on. Um, and, uh, and, and so we, you know, like, we see this coming, and we see what happened to the auto industry with electric cars, and, like, we get it. Meat alternatives are coming, and they're, you know, serious and very uh, real. So I, I, I reported that story, and I got the CEO of Tyson to say to me, um, if we can grow the meat without the animal, why, why wouldn't we do that? And uh, I, like, called my editor... I wish I wish I'd been you and and said, oh my God! Like the CEO of Tyson just told me, like if we can grow meats without an animal, why wouldn't we do that? Um, and so we made that a big splash. Anyway, a month later, Tom Hayes was resigned. He was resigned. He was actively resigned. I don't know. Maybe he resigned. I, he didn't tell me personally why he was resigned. Um, but uh, Tom Hayes was out a month after this piece ran. And the meat industry was in peril, and the, for many other reasons. But the Did point he sign is, an NDA, and if not, <laughs> can we do another story? I know. Like, I would really like to get to the bottom of why Tom Hayes was uh, was released um, from his position. But the point is, you know, they're like he. The, what they're investing in these, you know, meat alternative technologies is negligible compared to what they're investing in the 2.3 billion animals they slaughter every year. Tyson is the biggest meat producer by a long shot in the U.S. Um, so it's not like they're, you know, jumping into meat alternatives. But the fact is that they're saying we are a protein company. We are not an animal meat company. And in 10 years or 20 years or whatever that is, we see a lot more of our products becoming protein that are derived from plants, proteins that are derived from, you know, these lab, these cultured meats. Um, and uh, this is what, where the world is going. And this is what the, not just like, you know, our generation, um, but, you know, the millennials and Gen Z and these guys are really not uncomfortable with the idea of eating meats that come from other sources. And if that's plants or if that's bioreactors, there's a lot more openness to this thing. So, yes, I ate the, do you want to talk about the bioreactor duck? It was, it was kind yeah, of Yeah, cool. let's talk about that. <laughs> so, so Uma Vuletti, who's Does the, anybody here not want to hear about the bioreactor <laughs> duck? Please raise your hand. Um, Uma Valetti, who's the guy um, who, and by the way, I mean, in, in addition to Tyson Foods investing in Memphis Meats, it's also, um, you know, Bill Gates and Richard Branson and some of the more sort of predictable, you know, tech people who are all over this stuff. I mean, of course, like, Silicon Valley loves this, you know, all this alternative meats. And Pat Brown, who's the CEO of Impossible Foods, um, is, you know, a Silicon Valley guy, a Stanford guy. Did you study with him? I, I interviewed him in his, pre anyway, long story, I did not study with him. Okay. Um, interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, and Very Ethan Brown, guy. I mean, these people who are on the front end of this, like, meat alternatives world are so interesting and, and sort of extreme humans, as is Ethan Brown, who's the head of Beyond Meat. Um, he's, you know, like, jacked. I mean, this guy's got, like, huge muscles, and he's never had, like, any animal protein in his life, which was very interesting to me. He was like a, like a, a, a some kind of thoroughbred stallion who'd been raised on like <laughs> grains. I don't know. It didn't make any sense to me, but whatever. He was so interesting. I was like, I'll eat your product. You, it seems to be working. Um, 
But anyway, Uma Valetti, who um, uh, is the, the, on the front end of, of, of this lab meat movement or the cell-based meat movement, um, uh, invited me to his uh, office to, to try this meat. And it was a lump of duck that was like about this big. And I think that it was, you know, probably six or $700 to produce this thing, um, which sounds like a lot. But um, in three years, the cost of this stuff has come down from hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, at least half a million dollars for one pound of, you know, this bioreactor meat to, you know, a couple hundred dollars or, you know, several hundred dollars. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really changing quickly. Anyway, he sizzled this thing in a little <laughs> pan. Um, in his at the Memphis Meat Laboratories, in the like on a little hot plate or whatever, um, and uh, he kept saying like, "Smell the aroma." You don't get that from you know a, a veggie burger, which is true. It smelled very meaty. And by the way, he is a vegetarian and he eats this stuff all the time. And he said his kids eat it, so he's like, "Don't worry about signing your life away. You'll be fine." Um, and uh, and so he you know got me into the aromas, and there we are. And I sat down. And there was like a little placemat and everything. And I said, like, could we, you know, like, say a prayer or something for these, like, like a, a grace or, you know, I don't know what, like, this is, is this, because we'll get to this. But basically, these cells were alive, and they were, in fact, like, twitching and flexing and doing these things that live cells do before they then were deprived of oxygen and died, and I ate them. Um, but... Uh, basically, they're real live cells. They're real live freaking cells. They're just not attached to a brain, um, and they're you know uh, they're non-sentient but living cells, and so they're molecularly identical to the cells that come from the meat that you harvest from a sentient animal. Anyway, I was really interested in this. I put it in my mouth, and as I was like sawing into it, he's like, "Amanda, stop! You need to." Pull it apart with your fingers, and so you can see and feel how this, you know, these cells perform and sort of behave. And they, and it, you pull it apart, and it's like stringy muscle, because they are literally muscle cells that, you know, are muscle and fat and connective tissues um, that are all growing in this thing. Anyway, so I did so, and uh, like get, got all these stringy muscle strands, popped it in my mouth. Everybody there was like. 13 people on his team all standing there while I'm like at this table on my little placemat. <laughs> I was like, quack. <laughs> um, Uma, I think I have certainly somehow like am taken on these duck cells and I'm becoming a duck. And, uh, and we, you know, had a good laugh and that was it. But it was perfectly like tasty and tasted. I have only had duck a few times in my life. But it tasted very ducky, and it tasted very meaty, and it was like, if you put some Peking sauce with this stuff, like, I could totally get into it. Anyway, I didn't die, obviously. Um, I ate the whole thing, and um, it was totally uneventful. The most eventful thing for me, and that was truly staggering and heart-stopping, which I've already sort of said, was that I watched these living cells go from sort of one to two, First of all, to replicate, which cells naturally do, and you as a science person know this better than I do, but cells will naturally replicate. The, 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 the actual process of replicating cells and growing cells upon cells upon cells is as natural as life. That's how we grow, right? Um, so they create conditions for the cells to do what they naturally do. And I'm watching this stuff going like, 
okay, this sounds so labby and weird and creepy, but basically they're just creating optimal conditions for cells to do very natural things. It's kind of like in vertical farms, the chapter on vertical farms, where you see these plants growing without soil and sun, and they're creating optimal conditions for plants to do what they naturally do. Like there's something about it that's inherently very natural and it was less, not as sort of unnatural and supernatural as I expected it to be. Um, and anyway, the upshot was that, uh, that you know, he, I, I had told him that I was like really mostly coming to the Berkeley, California headquarters of Memphis Meats to see these things twitch <laughs> and flex and like spasm in a Petri dish because I just couldn't believe that that is a real thing. And, and he called me over and he showed me this, um, you know, this petri dish of muscle, um, again, living but unsentient, that was flexing like, like, like a muscle does in this dish. And I just was, I, I, I was breathtaking. I was so shocked that this is a real actual thing that's happening. And, um, and I wasn't though like as freaked out by it as I was just Alice in the looking glass. Like, the, we are in a moment in time, right now, we are all alive in a moment in time when extraordinary, implausible things are happening, in part because we are responding to extraordinary and implausible pressures. And that was the story for me. I don't, whether we're gonna have a future of lab meat, who knows? And whether I'm gonna be feeding it to my children, I'd be happy to feed it to my kids, but you know, I don't know. I, I can't predict whether this thing is going to succeed. The fact that it's happening and billions of dollars are getting plowed into this kind of research was what drove me chapter after chapter to meet these people. All right, we're going to move to audience Q&A. And if the first person could ask a long one, because the last five minutes in my head, I've been trying to think about in my days as a vegan, whether I would have been okay eating the twitching duck meat and how complicated the stone debates in college would have been about that. We used to debate whether it was okay to beat honey because the bees were exploited and whether you could drink beer with yeast in it. I feel like, yes, you can drink, you could eat the lab meat. But anyway, but Q&A, no, 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 somebody really will bring a microphone, we'll debate this no, <laughs> once in, everybody's drunk. Um, uh, no, there's actually been a big debate in um, f f halal and kosher cuisine. Is it, or can you do lab meat? And in fact, as I understand it, and we should somebody Google this, but there was a like meeting of the, you know, <laughs> imams and rabbis, and basically they said, yep, yep, this is right, kosher. Let's do audience. Q and let's do hands up. Hello. Can vegans wait? Hold on. Before we go to the Q and A, hands up if you think a vegan can eat a twitching duck muscle. Hands up if you think that's not okay. Look at this, Elliot. She she was like a half, and then she like oh. went for it because it was. But that's important because it was because because there is like a a, a sort yeah. of peer pressure thing. It's like I guess, and then if everybody's on board with it, I I think we had about all right. What about what about? All right, let's bring some order here. We have a gentleman with a microphone. And oh, wait, we need a we need a microphone so that you can be uh, heard. In, in cancer research, it was really difficult to find a cell that we re reproduce robustly enough so that you could study cells. Um, and that's the story of the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, where she had cervical cancer that was so aggressive, and they were able to isolate our cells 
and those cells were the first cells that could be reproduced and grown independently of a human being. And actually, the Hela cells, Henrietta Lacks Hela, are the cells that um, so much of our science around the world is based on. How are you know? So how are they getting these muscle cells to reproduce independently of a sentient being? And is there a deeper science in there that is a requires a little more thinking about. So interestingly, yeah, isolating the cells that re replicate robustly and creating the environment for those cells to replicate are the two most difficult pieces of it, right? Um, one is that the bovine serum, which is the, 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 the medium in which the cells replicate and they get all that you know, nutrient that they need um, is non-vegan, right? It's actually coming from, I think, baby calves or something like that. And that caused this huge uproar and, oh my gosh, they're doing this lab meat without, you know, using this, you know, bovine serum that um, is non-vegan, so you can't call it vegan. Um, the big rush has been, okay, let's create you know, vegan bovine serum, and so Memphis Meats and all the other players in this space, and there are many of them, I mean, there's at least a dozen other companies that are going out, are madly trying to create this vegan serum, and they're very close, but it's expensive, and blah, blah, blah. So that's one. Um, the other thing is that getting the cells um, is this biopsy process, and it's, they actually have this whole group of farmers who are producing these, you know, certain kinds of, you know, high-value meats that they want to, you know, they have to get the biopsy from exactly the part of the animal, it, you know, the muscle in the animal that they, you know, want to replicate. Um, and so they, you know, the farmers are on board with this, and I don't know what the cost is of all these biopsies that they're getting from these different farms, but they are taking it from live animals. The animals are not killed for the, in this case. Some, some I think, probably come from carcasses recently. I don't know, but the point is that it's, you know, a non-invasive process for the animals. The farmers are on board, and they're um, sending these samples, and that's what the, this whole laboratory is focused on. Why are these, these cells behaving in this way? Why are these cells, you know, replicating faster or better than these other ones? Um, which ones do we want? Which ones taste better? And this is why, you know, for Uma Valetti, like, getting it to market and figuring out, you know, the ethics behind, you know, I mean, it's very different in with Henrietta's story because it's a human whose cells are, you know, getting sold for lots and lots of money. Um, and in this case, it's, you know, animals who are still living, who are still waddling around the farm in Petaluma, California. And super interesting ethical dilemma if you had to kill one animal to get the cell for a million pieces of meat. Um, all right, let's move to some more questions. And does that farmer row. get paid for all the pieces of meat that came from the cells of that one animal? Um, yeah, all of this stuff is really what makes it a totally fascinating story. But the research is so new as to why certain cells are more, you know, behave better in the replication process than others, what, who's, who owns the value of those replicating cells, you know, whether that particular chicken should get like an extra massage for giving up <laughs> its cells, whatever, some extra corn feed, I don't know. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's different when it's animal-based, but you're right, it's still, you know, than, than human-based cell. Oh, of eating it. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 it's a great question, and it needs to be explored. All right, so at the beginning of your talk, you mentioned how the current administration uh, has 
basically attacked climate science. But I think one of the more hopeful things we've seen recently with some of the current presidential candidates is they've come out with fairly bold uh, climate initiatives, at least compared to uh, recent history. So if you had, let's say, 30 minutes to an hour with either a presidential candidate uh, or just an important policymaker, what advice would you give them based on your findings or recommendations for concrete steps that they could take? That's such a good question. And I'm so glad you asked that because I prepared that answer for Terry Gross and she did not ask the question. So I'm like, yes! Um, so, so, I mean, farms can play a really important role in carbon sequestration. And, um, and, and no-till farming, there's a huge opportunity for no-till farms and no-till farming, which is essentially where you don't plow, which pulls up and releases a lot of carbon, um, but you let the crops stay where they are, you just cut them, and you sort of let them become the bed in which the new seeds are planted. And it's much, much more, it's much better for um, soil retention, and, and, I mean, sorry, water retention in the soil, and it's much better um, uh, for, you know, the actual integrity of the soil. Um, the problem is that no-till farming requires a lot of chemicals to kill the the um, the, the weeds that come into the, this mat. But anyway, we'll get into that. The 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 opportunity and the incentive for farmers to do no-till and to become you know um, carbon sequestering farmers um, should be incentivized, just the way that we should have incentives on cap and trade for you know more efficient and less polluting and energy. Um, you know, uh, um, power plants um, and cars. We should have incentives for farmers who adopt much more, you know, car, you know, better carbon sequestration practices, um, and that saves them money across the board. That's you, they save money on, um, uh, you know, irrigation, um, and uh, to a certain extent, with some new AI robotic technologies that are coming online, they can save money on chemical usage. But anyway. We got to incentivize that. And the other thing is that there's a lot of unused farmland. I mean, tons of it. And we have yet to really identify how much farmland is actually used and productive, but some is fallowed or put through sort of rotation cycles. And the opportunity for farms that have, you know, unusable land to be um, returned to, um, you know, pre-agricultural forests should be incentivized also. Um, you know, trees are the best machine we have for absorbing carbon. They're so crucial. So getting trees um, into farmland that's fallow or unusable um, could be hugely advantageous from, you know, in terms of uh, a climate um, strategy. So um, those are two of, of several, but uh, farms can be a huge part of it. I mean, obviously, it would be great if we had some kind of tax on, like, you know, eating you know, meat, for example, because meat production is so carbon intensive. Uh, you'd I, be paying it. Yes, I would. There's a lovely moment in the book where Amanda's like, I, I try to be a vegan and then, but I live in Nashville and they're barbecues. <laughs> it's really wonderful. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm a totally failed vegan. I tried, I got 67 days in and then someone offered me this plate of carne asada, carne asada tacos. And it was like drizzled with this crazy sauce and it was so good and I just went like, wah! <laughs> And I just like devoured everything, and I have st not stopped eating meat since. All right, so um, a tax you were going on with the tax before yeah, I interrupted that's you. That's it. But anyway, and 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 there's many others, but those are the key things. I mean, you know, trees on unusable farmland, and 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 incentivizing farmers to become sequest, you know, to sequester carbon is hugely 
valuable and, um, and needs to be part of the Green New Deal. I'm going to talk to AOC after this. If anyone can get me to AOC, talk to me after. We're going to get that in there. Uh, but, you know, like, by the way, Farm Bill and talking about food policy is just, like, who wants to talk about it? It's so boring. So um, it's kind of hard. I know, except for you, which is, like, great. Let's, we should talk more. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's very hard to get, you know, people excited about, like, agricultural policies that are going to help sequester carbon. But it's so important because, the, you know, the vast majority of the land... Um, is you know used for uh, for grain production and for um, uh, I mean full stop for grain production and so figuring out how to do that better and smarter is cr critical. Hi Amanda, um, I want oh, to hi. hi. <laughs> Could you talk about consolidation in food production for we can say for agricultural products and maybe for animal products, we hear a lot about sort of the perils of industrial farming, um, but you also talk about uh, maybe it is not small backyard farms that are going to fix the food system. So can you talk about the trade-offs between like super consolidated industrial food production and smaller independent farms and sort of the future of farming? That's such a good question. Um, so, you know, yeah, the 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 fantasy I had was like small backyard farms and you know moving to midsize and you know diverse integrated farms is the way forward and that was one of my sort of assumptions going into this reporting. It occurred to me that sustainable food there are three criteria that are critical for sustainable food. And right now we talk about what's ecologically optimal and that is certainly important. We also have to talk about what's achievable and affordable because you can't do sustainable food if it's achievable and affordable only for people who can be as virtuous as Michael Pollan um, or as good in the garden or have the time and the resources to, you know, um, to shop at Whole Foods or at farmers markets and CSAs and the creativity to, to do that. Um, and that was one of my like major assumptions going into, I mean, kind of premises going into this is I am not good at being Michael Pollan. I, I really am you know, just not a virtuous eater, I'm not a good backyard farmer, like, how are we gonna fix this system across the board? How are we gonna do 100% sustainable food if we can't rely on a critical mass of backyard farming vegans to do it from the ground up? Because I know all there is to know about slaughterhouses and like the problems with our current system. But I don't know that my own behavior is going to, you know, lead us to um, um, the, the, the Edenic solutions that, that Pollen ha and, and Bittman and others have, have espoused. And I'm all, I, I, I really support those, I just don't know how practicable they are on a grand scale. So, yes, some amount of industrial food production is going to be essential to keeping, um, you know, affordable, to keeping, you know, to, to preserving affordability um, for low and middle income families who can't you know, pay three times more for their food, which is part of what sustainable food advocates are saying. You gotta get used to higher prices. And yes, that's great, but like tell that to a single mom working three jobs with two kids, you know, it's just very hard to really make that go. So what's exciting to me is what are the ways in which agriculture, sustainable, I mean, sorry, large scale industrial agriculture can become, um, you know, can become informed by the, the wisdom of 
agroecology and traditional farming practices. Um, we need more diversity on farms. You know, monocropping is terrible across the board, right? We need, um, you know, ideally some smaller farms, but we need to bring diversity and integration into the way that um, fields are, uh, that, that, that farms are managed. Um, and I referred earlier very briefly to this um, uh, AI technology that's um, coming online, um, but essentially, this guy, Jorge Harad, who you should look up, this um, Blue River Technologies, his company, and he developed a robotic weeder that, um, and this will be relevant, I, I promise, but he developed this robotic weeder that sees, using 24 cameras hitched to the back of a tractor, crops. They're able to distinguish between the crop they're growing the baby crop that's growing and the baby weeds that are growing. And with sniper-like precision, it releases a tiny little jet of concentrated fertilizer onto this baby weed that can't survive with that level of fertilizer. And it dies. And then the crops keep growing. And they, this robot keeps managing and managing the growth of weeds with this sniper-like precision. So instead of glyphosate getting, you know, broadcast spraying, broadcast sprayed across all these fields from you know, a Cessna plane, you've seen those massive crop dusters, they're doing pss, 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 pss. And that's, with that kind of technology that's cutting agrochemicals 90%. I watched the maiden voyage of this, of this, um, uh, this robotic weeder in Arkansas, and it was totally staggering to see the, the thing make mistakes and learn and figure out, oh wait, this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing, and these AI, Robots learn and learn and learn how to do it better and better. The point is this. This is the beginning of plant-by-plant plant farming rather than field-by-field field farming. So the, the tools that have been used on industrial farms have been stupid. They've only been able, they do row crops because the row crops uh, can only be managed by you know, a machine that can do one thing. If you have machines that can do multiple things and treat each plant individually, then you can begin bringing sort of diversity and integration into these larger scale farms. Um, and you know, essentially, you know, he's taking this. This company, by the way, was purchased by John Deere in September, I think it was, for three hundred plus million dollars. Um, and I like I had been working on this story, and I was like, Jorge. You sold out to John Deere. What are you doing? Like, they're like the devil. And um, it's like this old, I mean, again, all these assumptions about like a major ag company can't do anything right, right? I mean, we, 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 we all have that assumption. We have this sort of, in, you know, reflexive gag reflex anytime you talk about agro, you know, business, agribusiness. Uh, anyway, he said, Amanda, we need to get this stuff out there we need to bring the cost of our robots down. We need to get this on fields. We need to be able to like bring you know chemicals down on the you know and it, to do that, I can't scale without John Deere. They know how to build these things, and make them work and make them. And there are problems with it, of course, but to say we got to take all the industrial farms offline and go and everybody's got to eat from a CSA is you know or from backyard farms and small scale farms is just not practicable. Um, and uh, I think we will all continue to have great opportunities to eat from farmers markets and, um, you know, heirloom plants and, you know, organic, non-GMO, whatever. The, all that is not going to be, you know, threatened by this stuff. It's just that let's do the mass food production better and smarter, and some of that is beginning to happen. Hi. Um, I'm not against technology. I actually teach technology and biotechnology, but I'm wondering how much of the change needs to be behavior modification. 
So I just read today 1.5 billion dollars were invested in the food system for startups. And I'm wondering in your research or in your experience how much you came across people trying to change the way we approach food or the way we relate to food, right? We're a culture that's weaned on instant gratification and reward. And how much of the money that's being spent on the technology could potentially go to changing the way we think about the foods we eat? That's a great question. And I'm going to, I'm so glad you asked that as the last question because I'm going to share it with Nick. Because I think he has probably really good ideas about this and, you know, how much of the solution is a tech fix and how, well, Share it means foist upon? Is that what yes. you're saying? <laughs> foisting, foisting, but like over to him. Um, behavior modification is crucial, right? And, um, and Elizabeth Colbert said this in her amazing book, The Sixth Extinction. I hope everybody's read that. Oh my gosh, hi, Amelia. Sorry, godmother over there. Um, she, uh, be, what was I saying? Oh, um, uh, six extinction. Um, Elizabeth Colbert was asked this. You know, like we're facing this massive, you know, um, uh, you know, ransacking biodiversity all over the world. Um, and how are we going to do that? And she said in this interview, how are we going to address this? She said we're going to be need massive amounts of technology and massive amounts of behavior modification. Like you need both, and you can't do one without the other. And it's all about judicious, you know, sensible applications of technology. Um, but to vilify technology, which is part of what I think the sustainable food movement has done, is not going to get us there. So the, the, the book really talks about what I call a third way approach to food production, which is, you know, drawing on the wisdom of, you know, uh, traditional and agroecological food systems um, and using the best technologies we have at hand uh, so that the technology can elevate those principles. They're not at odds, right? Um, and uh, behavior modification and, you know, shifting the sensibilities that we have around particularly food waste is so essential. I mean, that was probably the hardest chapter for me to report personally, apart from the meat thing, because I have not been very good at do, giving that up. But the food waste thing is just staggering, and we waste 35% to 40% of all the food that's grown globally. It rots in transit, it's thrown out, and uh, a lot of it happens in homes. Um, and a lot of it is among people who have, you know, um, very healthy plant-based diets because it's the perishable foods that are thrown out. It's not the Twinkies and the Spam that get thrown out, right? Um, so a lot of us are implicit in all this, you know? We, we are wasting so much food and um, we're so, and, and it's part because we have unrealistic aesthetic standards for our food. We overorder, we overbuy. Um, that is going to be one of the hardest behavior modifications for in the U.S. in particular, because we're the biggest food wasters by a long shot. Um, uh, but you know, it's across the board. You know, how do we begin to think about meat as a condiment? How do we begin to, you know? shift our attitudes toward this. And I think it has to feel achievable first for me. You know, if it's cataclysmic, like, stop eating meat, you know, which has been my approach, then I, you know, all I can dream about is meat, and then I, you know, I get to the carne asada tacos, and I'm like, it's all over. Um, so, you know, this absolutist thing that is so inherent in the discussion around food right now is definitely part of what needs to go in order for people to begin to be, you know, change their behavior. Um, we've got to get beyond this totally polarized discussion about is it all tech or is it all, you know, is it all, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow superfoods? I mean, it's just not that, that's just totally unrealistic. Go ahead. 
ought to say two things. I'm the editor of Wired, so I'm also not against technology. Two, I totally agree. That was a great answer. And three, those wine bottles back there look like they have about 35% left in them, so please do not waste them. It's time to party. Also, buy books. She will sign them. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much.